Okay. A friend of mine is a band director at a high school in Tacoma, Washington. And he, the spring of each school year is particularly stressful for him. He has music contests, parades, concerts, tours, and then graduation. And you throw in spring fever. All of that combines to make a very trying last two months of school every single year. One particular spring, added to all that stress, Dennis, which was his name, had to discipline two of his students. After promises and threats, he was reluctantly forced to dismiss these two very rowdy, uncontrollable musicians from his band. On Friday of that week, the last of this terrible week behind him, Dennis loaded their van, hooked up their trailer, and together with his wife and his kids, headed off for a nice, quiet, uneventful, uninterrupted, and peaceful weekend alone. As he told the story, they had reached their remote campsite, set up the trailer, put out their lawn furniture, and started the barbecue. He had just settled back in one of their lounge chairs with a good book, was just beginning to unwind and relax when, guess what? Behind him, he heard, Hi, Mr. Dearth! Guess who? Camped right next to his site were the two rowdy, uncontrollable band members he had just kicked out of the band. Not sure how that ended. He never told me. Have you ever experienced something similar? That's the story of us. It's the story of us. You're stressed out, burned out, tired, you're irritable, cranky, you're, even your kids tell you you need a vacation. So you go off expecting peace, quiet, solitude, and relaxation, and something happens. The phone rings or someone interrupts you. It's the story of us. It happens. It also happened to Jesus. Just when he needed a break, some solitude, some uninterrupted silence, and alone time. And I want us to join the story to see how Jesus turned interruption into opportunity. Interruption into opportunity. As we look at the story of us, please turn with me, if you would, to Matthew, the 14th chapter. Matthew 14, it's on page 796 in the Bible in front of you, in the, in the rack, if you want to follow there. Matthew 14, we're going to start with verse 13. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the village and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. For proper attribution, some of the outlined points were gleaned from Max Lucado, just so you know that up front. This story begins with something all of us experience. It's unexpected 
unexpected interruptions. Verse 13 says that when Jesus had heard what had happened, the what had happened refers to the previous verses. Jesus had just received the news that John the Baptist, his good friend and relative, had been beheaded. He had been murdered. Jesus is dealing with the, the loss of pain and death. And remember, Jesus was God, but he was also human, he experiencing the same kinds of emotions and feelings and pain that we experience. In today's world, we hear about and read about death every day. We see it in the newspaper, we see it on the internet, uh, we see it online, all, all kinds of ways. And it seemingly has little effect on us unless someone close to us dies. Then we are deeply affected, dealing with death, dealing with permanent loss. These kinds of times demand solitude, time to think, to pray, to, to meditate, just time to, to process there's a deep human need to deal with a traumatic human tragedy. Well, Jesus also needed solitude, time to be alone, with only close friends so that he could grieve privately. So what happened? An unexpected interruption. The crowds found out where Jesus went and followed him there. Now, you, you may be here this morning wanting peace and solitude, not necessarily because of, of a death in the family, Maybe it's just the endless demands of life. It's a, a mother with young children. You just, you never get out. You never seem to have an adult conversation. Maybe it's a grandparent taking care of grandchildren. Maybe you're taking care of an aging parent and feel tied down. Maybe it's family issues or job stress, health issues, financial challenges, and you're interrupted. Interruptions are tough to deal with, especially in difficult personal times. Jesus knew those times. Jesus experienced those interruptions. Now, on top of the unexpected interruptions of Jesus, we find, secondly, unreasonable demands. Unreasonable demands. This was a large crowd. Over 5,000 people in this crowd. Many had some disease or sickness. It was, they had tremendous, overwhelming needs. All of them were coming to one person, Jesus, to have their needs met. One person. Unreasonable demands. Max Lucado writes in his book and gives a label for the times in their home when their children were small and the needs were great. He called it the piranha hour. The piranha hour. Now, a piranha is a tiny fish that travel in packs of hundreds and take minute bites from its prey and can devour an entire animal in mere minutes. The piranha hour. And Max writes this. In our house, we called 5 p.m., the piranha hour. So that's the time of day when everyone wanted a piece of mom. Sarah, the baby, was hungry. Andrea wanted mom to read her book. Jenna wanted help with her homework. And I, the ever-loving, ever-sensitive husband, wanted her to drop everything and talk to me about my day. Do you have a piranha hour? See, it sounds like I have piranha, piranha days. You probably say that. When people demand much, but they offer very, very little. Maybe, it's, maybe you're a teacher, and the, from the moment you enter the classroom, the students arrive, piranha, piranha, piranha hour lasts all day until they actually leave. Maybe you're a business person trying to keep up with the demands of business, and it seems like there's never enough time to deal with that. Parents or administrative assistants, maybe you're a nurse or doctor or surgeon. No one comes to give, they all come to take. How did Jesus respond? How should we respond? Compassion. 14.4 says he had compassion on them. Now, the, there's, there's an interesting word for compassion here. It's a Greek word, 
that is pronounced splunknitzomai. And I know you would have never been able to go home satisfied until you knew that, that word, splunknitzomai. Now, it doesn't mean much unless you're a health professional. If you're a health professional, you know that there's something called splunknology. It's the study of the visceral parts. In ordinary language, it's the study of the gut. And what this says is that that Jesus' compassion was not casual pity. Jesus felt their hurt in his gut. Jesus felt the limp of the cripple, the loneliness of the leper, the hurt of the sick, the shame of the sinful. He was moved in his entire interior being, his stomach, his splunkna, by people's needs. It's the same way he feels about your needs today. Compassion, not feeling sorry for, but a deep empathy it's an identification with. And people, people have varying degrees of empathy. Jesus had perfect empathy. He actually feels what you feel. Then he healed the sick. He had compassion, then he healed it. Now the question is, did they all deserve healing? Did they all deserve healing? It doesn't say that he healed the sick who deserved it. He says he healed their sick. One writer says, Matthew writes that Jesus healed their sick, not some of their sick, not the righteous among the sick, not the deserving among the sick, but the sick. And you think that among the many, many people, there must have been a few people that didn't deserve or were unworthy of good health. I wonder if Jesus was tempted to say to the rapist, heal you after what you've done, or to the child molester, why should I restore your health, or to the bigot? All kinds of things. He could see not only their past, he could see their future. Lucado writes, undoubtedly, I quote, there were those in the multitude who would use their newfound health to hurt others. Jesus released tongues that would someday curse. He gave sight to eyes that would lust. He healed hands that would kill. Many would never say thank you, but he healed them anyway. Most would be more concerned about being healthy than holy, but he healed them anyway. Some of those who asked for bread today would cry for his blood a few months later, but he healed them anyway. Jesus chose to do what you and I seldom, if ever, choose to do. He chose to give gifts to people, knowing full well that those gifts could be used for evil. Every time Jesus healed, he had to overlook the future and the past. Close quotes. Jesus still does that. He does that. He doesn't give gifts to those who use their money wisely, only those who remember to thank him. God's goodness is spurred by his nature, not by our worthiness. We don't always deserve Jesus' compassion or his healing, but he gives it to us anyway. That's called grace, receiving things that we don't deserve. So we have unexpected interruptions, unreasonable demands. Next we find, number three, inadequate resources. Been a long day, it's a great day. People were healed, they were taught. Now everyone is hungry. They're in a remote location. Sounds like babies hungry. Okay, here we go. They're in a remote location. There's there's not a McDonald's in sight, there's no Culver's around the corner. Cheese curds hadn't been invented yet. They didn't have any of that. Jesus and his disciples had nothing to give. So the di- disciples tell Jesus, it's getting late, it's time for dinner, tell people to go home or go away and eat. Jesus says, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. This story is recorded in all four Gospels. Interesting. Just one story, all four Gospels. 
And it's interesting to note what, what each eyewitness remembered. John in John 6 gives more detail. When Jesus said, you feed them, there were two reactions. Philip said, eight months of wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have even a bite. Andrew said, here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Inadequate resources. There's, there's just no way, God, that we can do this. Jesus, there's no way we can do what you've asked us to do. Jesus turns to you, to Eau Claire Wesleyan Church, surrounded by hungry, needy people, and he says to us, he says, you feed them. Not necessarily physical food. We do have some hunger needs in Eau Claire and many options for those that are physically hungry, but people in Eau Claire are starving spiritually. They're starving Spiritually, I've heard the number of unchurched stands at around 44,000. But Jesus, I don't have the resources. I'm just an ordinary person. I'm not rich. I, I don't have this great education. Or I've never been to seminary. I don't have a teaching degree. I'm not a famous athlete. I don't have a lot of time. What can I possibly do? Me? Feed them? Besides, I'm tired, depressed, and hurting myself. What could I possibly do? Me? Feed all these people? That's called realism. Realism was what Philip and Andrew were. And realism can sometimes be the total opposite of faith. We measure it by our resources. We look at reality and we say, in our view, realistically, we cannot even touch this need. Because we look at our resources. We look at our small roles of five rolls of, of bread are too small fish and our resources are inadequate it's okay we know that they're inadequate but jesus still says to us you feed them our response is the same as his followers i can't i can't inadequate resources i can't sometimes that's all jesus is waiting to hear from us when we reach the point of i can't then god can Let's look at what happened next. An unbelievable miracle, number four. How did this happen? How can Jesus take a little and make much? How can Jesus take inadequate resources and do great big things? How can we see Jesus do a miracle in our and with our inadequacies? Four things must happen. First of all, give what we have to Jesus. Give what we have. To Jesus. This little boy, he had these coarse barley loaves. It, it even, wasn't even great whole wheat or sourdough or anything. It was just this coarse barley loaves. And then he had small fish, maybe like sardines, so small they, they could have been bait, like bait fish. They were just insignificant. But he gave his little to Jesus. We may not have much, but this is a call to give whatever we have to Jesus. And when we give it, we let go of it. We let go of control. We let it go. Let it go. This was not a test of what they couldn't do. This was a test of what God could do with their little. Give what we have to Jesus. Then Jesus accepts what we give him. And in that acceptance, he blessed it, he consecrated it, he set it apart, made it holy. Something to be used by God for his purposes. Whatever we give to God, God sets it apart and dedicates it to his use. Then it becomes his job to use it. 
No matter how small or inadequate we see our gifts to him, he always blesses them, sets them apart for his use, for his purposes. Thirdly, Jesus transforms what we give. He transforms what we give. Says he broke it. He broke it. Sometimes what we give to God to use needs some change. It needs to be transformed. Sometimes it needs to be broken down. Broken down. So that it can be multiplied. The bread had to be broken into pieces. When's the last time you felt broken? When's the last time you just actually were just broken? Felt like God broke you into pieces. Difficult times break us. They break us from our focus on what we can see and put and quantify. Our money, our material possessions, our own, inadequ- our own adequacies or securities, our own abilities. The transformation of our resources will many times require a breaking process. And it's hard. Breaking us from our self-sufficiency, saying, I can do it. Or transforming our insufficiency, which says, I can't do it. Both require a breaking of our pride, rebuilding it into something better, something more, something greater. Roy Hessian wrote a book, The Calvary Road, and he talks about the relationship between brokenness and multiplication, especially when it comes to revival. He says the outward forms of such revival do, of course, differ, but the inward permanent content of them is always the same, a new experience of conviction of sin among the saints and a new vision of the cross of Jesus and of redemption, a new willingness on man's part for brokenness, repentance, confession, and restitution, a new entering into the, an openness to entering into the fullness of the Holy Spirit and relying on his power to do his work through his people. He says, revival is not a green valley getting greener. Let me repeat that. Revival is not a green valley getting greener, but a valley full of dry bones being made to live again. Let me repeat that. Revival is not a green valley getting greener, but it's a valley full of dry bones being made to live again. It's not good Christians becoming better Christians, but Christians honestly confessing that their Christian life is a valley of dry bones, and by this confession, We qualify for the grace that flows from the cross and makes all things new. There's there's the brokenness. There's the brokenness. Our little becomes much. When we give it to Jesus, when he blesses it, he breaks it. And when we place everything at his disposal in faith and obedience that we've received from him, Jesus will, in spite of our own insignificance and inadequacies, multiply our talents, our power, our spiritual gifts, our spiritual fruits, and use it to feed others, and he'll transform their lives. It's not, it's not in us to do it. It's in giving it to God and letting him do it. How does that happen? Verse 19 to 20, it says they gave it away. It says, and he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and two fish, looking up to heaven, gave thanks, broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. Jesus gave it away. Give it away. Give what we have away. Don't try to hang on to it. God's blessings, when he multiplies them, continue to reproduce when we give them away. 
Now, when you look at your inadequacies or what you have, please don't compare with other people. You may feel like a sourdough English muffin instead of French bread at a fancy restaurant. You may feel like a carp instead of a king salmon. But all of us alike have been created for a purpose. Give to Jesus, being blessed by Jesus, broken by Jesus, multiplied, and give it away. Everything that has been given to us has been given to us in order to give it away. They all ate and were satisfied. Twelve baskets left over. It's not, this is not just sufficient. This is abundance. More than needed. Our God is not a God of the squeaker just getting by. Our God is a God of abundance. He wants to bless you. He wants to bless our church. He wants to bless Eau Claire. He wants to bless the state of Wisconsin. He wants to bless us. That's his heart. Give what we have to God. Set it apart by blessing. God will break it, transform it, and we give it away. So what's the meaning of the miracle? Number five. John 6.35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. After a miracle like this earlier in his ministry, the people tried to come um, and force Jesus to become the king by force. They wanted to be him to be their leader because this guy can make bread, he can take care of feeding us, man, let's make him our king. It's amazing. Jesus redirects their preoccupation with physical bread and points to spiritual bread that satisfies spiritual hunger. Adrian Rogers, a great preacher, now he's now in heaven, but he wrote a book, Believe in Miracles but Trust in Jesus. And he talks about the difference between the physical and the spiritual, and he writes this. Our world has the idea that all people need today is food that perishes. But if I had $5 billion and spent it to buy every person on earth a snack, in several hours they would all be hungry again. Food perishes. It is valid and necessary to feed the poor, and we would be blessed if we helped to help us. We ought to do that. But the problem with the so-called social gospel, or in many ways it's social justice, as opposed to the saving gospel, is that the social gospel puts an emphasis upon that which is temporary. The saving gospel emphasizes that which is eternal. Some people are only interested, he says, in making the world a better place to go to hell from. What we must do is get people saved. They need more than soup and soap. They need salvation. Salvation. That's the story of us. Turning interruptions into opportunities. Unexpected interruptions, unreasonable demands, inadequate resources followed by an unbelievable miracle as they gave what they had to Jesus, and Jesus gave it away. If you are here this morning and are yourself hungry and thirsty for something more than what you can see, taste, and touch, this gift, this bread, is for you. The story of us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you give us a, an unbelievable miracle story and you demonstrate the, the wrestling with what we have and what we don't have, our inadequacies and interruptions and just the stuff of life. 
And I pray, Lord Jesus, today that you would help us to focus on the life-giving power of Jesus, that he wants to break us and transform us. And Father, that you would speak to those that are here this morning that perhaps don't have that faith, that personal relationship with God through Jesus. And I pray that, that God, you'll speak to them. And those, Lord, that, that say, you know, I, I don't have anything to give. I, I don't know what to give this world. There are so many needs out there. I pray that you'll get, give them a vision for what they have to give to you, knowing that you can multiply it, you can use it. You can take our little and do much. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.